guest today is Aaron Eden, co-founder of the Elliott Group and the executive director of the Institute for Applied Tinkering. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Blake. Glad to be here. We ran into each other at a couple uh, education conferences, one in California, a homeschooling conference, and then at the Aero Conference in June 2019. And what were you speaking about at that Aero Conference? Uh, the Adult Power Axis, if I remember correctly. Um, and that's, <clears throat> or it would have been uh, Rethinking Adulting, which is um, kind of uh, related. But I think it was the Adult Power Axis on that one. Uh, can you briefly explain what the adult power axis is? I'm so <laughs> curious. That that sounds almost like like something that's going in a different direction. Yeah. Um, well, it's uh, it it kind of came to me when I was um, just seeing over and over and over again how um, when adults do agree that our authoritarian um, stance with youth um, is not you know, desirable, not getting us what we would want for them or for us or for the world. Um, that I, the, the just reaction over and over again, whether it's teachers in schools or parents at home or wherever it might be, um, that we kind of shift to permissiveness or, and, and I would define that by um, not sort of letting people do what they want, which I think we should all let each other do what we want to a point. Um, and that point is when our own needs um, come into contact with that. And I define permissiveness as when we don't advocate for our own needs in the relationship. And so um, I, you know, see adults just kind of pull totally away. And, and what I realized was that I think that that's still related to adult power and that on the authoritarian side, it's um, it's my rules followed, but the permissiveness side is my rules not followed. And so it, it kind of came to me that I think they're both related to my rules. Um, and that I think that what we have to do to be successful in what when we want to not be authoritarian and be in healthy relationship with youth is we need to move on to a, a, a perpendicular axis, which I think of as the equity or co-creative axis. Um, so that's the perhaps clumsy wording I put around that, but it it was just this realization that even permissiveness um, is related to adult power. Aaron, this is why you're on this podcast, because you think <laughs> about this kind of stuff. And immediately, my head is is running through all the, the overlaps with unschooling, with running self-directed learning centers, with with all of these these theories of alternative education and self-directed education uh, that, that you and I and the, the people we know are into. Uh, so, but we got to back up. We have to go way back to the beginning <laughs> here, because uh, I, before we started this recording, I was poking around your LinkedIn profile. And you have such a long and rich history of working in the field of education, very broadly defined. Uh, you're yeah. also in the fields of, of design. You were in the martial arts. You did uh, a lot of tech stuff. You mm -hmm. worked with some really cool schools in California. You're working as the executive director of uh, a very cool school right now. Uh, you're the interim executive director at Brightworks. Am I correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that too. But but let's go to the very beginning here. How uh, <laughs> how did this all begin for you? How did you begin wow. thinking about education in a non-conventional way? Um, I mean, I I don't know that I started. I think the seeds of it were laid in my upbringing in my own um, 
education experience. Um, I don't think I really started thinking about education specifically until after not going, you know, I would say seven of my 12 years of K through 12 were either not in school or in very non-conventional settings. Um, And then it was when I, I circled back to actually, I joined a school to work with them. Um, and just kind of said, wow, you're still doing all that stuff I hated when I was in high school. Um, that's amazing. <laughs> and, um, and really started thinking about, you know, what did I not like about that? And, and why, why do I feel that this is horrible preparation for um, what we really want um, in our communities and in our lives? Um, and, and that was probably, um, probably 2002 when I started um, explicitly reflecting on, boy, what's, what's going on here? Mm. Um, but my, you know, I, um, <clears throat> when I was seven years old, um, I went to uh, live in India. Um, it was, I guess we spent six months there with my, my family traveling around and I, I didn't have any formal schooling, um, during that time. Um, but it was the most rich educational experience I've ever had. Um, and then we came back and I went third and fourth grade to an open classroom, um, you know, started in the late 60s, very kind of equitable, um, you know, space. Um, and, um, and then, you know, I, I basically didn't go to high school. Um, I just couldn't stand the largely I loved learning, but I couldn't stand the way the adults related to mm. us. What, uh, what decade are we in at this point, Aaron? Boy. Um, so high school was 86 was my freshman year of high school. Um, so I went from, you know, I did sixth, seventh and eighth grade in kind of a conventional middle school, um, you know, all A's. And then I went to high school and I was basically F's and D's. I think I got an A in drama and an A in Latin because I liked those. <laughs> Actually, I got the A. I got the A in um, drama because I liked it. I got the A in Latin because I cheated off my friend who sat next to me. It was really good, but I liked it enough to cheat. That's kind of how I like in the other classes. I what an like. honor. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and. Um, and then I just stopped going and kind of finagled my way to a, an adult equivalency diploma six months before I would have graduated high school. I worked during that time. I read, um, hung out with a friend's mother who was, um, we just sat and talked all day long, total opposite political spectrum from me. And we argued and talked and she had a classical education and, and I learned an immense amount. Um, and then I started college six months before I would have graduated from high school and went on to get two bachelor's degree and then a master's degree. And um, Can you elaborate on that? What did you study? And I mean, how did you yeah. end up with two bachelor's degrees? That's not very typical. No. So I, um, I, I was... Uh, Studying anthropology um, at the University of Washington, which was something that I was reading about when I was not in school, in high school. I was reading Richard Leakey and other books. And um, and then my dad actually convinced me. He said, you know, um, if you get a, ba- a bachelor's of science also, then when you go on for graduate work, if you want to, you'll be able to go in any direction. 
And I said, well, you know what, that kind of makes sense. Um, so I ended up um, doing a double degree with uh, anthropology and geology. And so I was able to overlap those with kind of soil soil science and other things um, to, to bolster my archaeology and other um, studies. Um, yeah, and then it was actually in college when I started um, what I call an ed tech business, but it was really um, more of a kind of a hobby. Um, I was studying martial arts at the time, and um, my uh, friend who was a, a programmer, and um, he and I and, and a couple other uh, friends produced, uh, marketed, and sold um, instructional martial arts CD-ROMs. And that's where I really started playing with, you know, how do you teach things and really thinking about um, that process. Um, and that's where I learned a lot of the skills that I built, you know, a lot of the rest of my kind of career on in terms of um, co-creating a vision with a team and figuring out how to execute it and learning what we need to learn to be able to do it. Um, and I learned about kind of tech and the internet and websites and all that kind of stuff and uh, marketing and, um, yeah. Okay. So you've done two bachelor's degrees, anthropology mm -hmm. and geology. You've yeah. helped a friend start a martial arts kind of mail order CD-ROM business. Mm -hmm. You're doing some back-end business stuff, some some early tech era stuff. At this point, this sounds like a fairly straightforward path. You, you don't sound like an educational revolutionary at this point, Aaron, I, I gotta <laughs> tell you. Yeah, no, I, um, I mean, <clears throat> other than not, I guess, go, I'm defending my creds here, um, not going to high school, um, I think was... Uh, definitely um felt rebellious at the time but but i definitely wasn't sort of out to um to change you know education you know other than my own right exactly. i was definitely out to change my own education um and i loved learning i mean i really enjoyed college i have to say um and uh admittedly a lot of the learning i did even then was tangents from what i was you know supposed to do in class um and then just sort of jumping through the hoops needed to, to do well in the classes. Um, but no, yeah, I definitely, you know, I wasn't, um, I didn't become the zealot I am today um, until, um, yeah, until about 2002 when I was sort of slapped in the face that high school didn't look any different than it did when I was in it, you know. And you were teaching? So I actually started, I was brought in to help um, reconfigure the telecommunications infrastructure at a top kind of private school near where I lived. Um, and so I joined the technology department and then I kind of, when I discovered what was happening, I kind of insinuated myself into the tech department um, in a more kind of educational capacity. And um, my first foray into kind of realizing that things needed to be different was actually around tech. Um, it was kind of thinking, boy, the real world has a lot of tech in it. And the way we're using technology is, is ridiculous. Um, you know, let's, let's see what we can, you know, help support teachers in using tech more. And, and, and it wasn't too long before I realized that tech wasn't really the thing that was going to do it. Um, as we've all discovered, um, that we had to totally reconfigure the learning environment and learning relationship to get the outcomes we wanted. Can you, can you give me an example of what was going on at this school that you at first thought could be solved by technology, and then you realized that there was more yeah. fundamental issues at play? Um, 
I mean, I think it was, um, boy, it, you know, it, it was, um, it's a really hard question to answer. I'm, I'm not sure I could, could pinpoint a specific thing that I felt was, was wrong other than that. I just knew stuff was wrong and, um, it wasn't enough like the real world. And I think tech might've become kind of the, um, the, the false idol, if you will, of sort of the thing that would fix it. Um, I don't think I had an idea of specifically how it would okay. other than that we would be doing, if we were using tech, I think what it was, was if we were using tech, the way that we use tech in the real world, we would then be doing things that were much more reality based. I think that was, that was really the driver for it. Um, mm. And then I realized that, um, you know, as I've since discovered with everything that if you do that through um, a paradigm and a lens of adult control, um, that we're still, while we might gain some skills in how to use technology, and we might even be doing more real world kind of um, challenges, but we're still learning how to use power over other people. And we're not learning how to kind of navigate the world on our own. And those are those. So we're, we're both learning something bad and we're not learning something we really need to be learning. Um, and it was tech that really helped me see that there is no single what that is going to change um, education. Right. And, and so in working with schools all over the world, you know, often the entry point is, you know, we want to bring in make maker spaces or we want to bring in design thinking or we want to bring in mindfulness or whatever it might be. And I've seen all of those what's um, and, or technology. Right. I've seen all of those what's get broken by the how of adult implementation. Mm. OK. And so when you're using the term technology, you're including like mindfulness programs in schools mm. as a form of technology. You're not speaking no, I mean, narrowly I about now. laptops yeah. and projectors. I do now. But then it was it was, you know, tech. It was, you know, um, software, hardware and all of that. But um, I actually do um, sort of think of human technologies more broadly now. Um, but just technology as we think of it normally is just sort of the first what that I saw as having so much potential get destroyed by adults. And then it was seeing, okay, wow, let's, you know, design thinking. Um, and then seeing that get destroyed by adults. Um, and then I think the straw that really broke the camel's back and helped me see that all what's get destroyed by adults <laughs> when we filter them through adult power um, is when I saw a student get detention for speaking during mindfulness. Um, and that was just it. <laughs> I was like, there is no, there is no what, right? Like if any, what could fix, right? The, the you know, our, our education communities, it would have to be mindfulness, right? Like that's got to do it. And, and it just, of course, doesn't. And that was it. I saw that email come through. So-and-so get, you know, has detention today for speaking during mindfulness or talking, you know, during mindfulness. And I was just like, that's it. There's, there's no what that's going to do this. And this was at a very well-regarded private California private school. Um, no, that one actually was at a very well-regarded and, and um, well-known uh, international school with, with, a, with a, a reputation for, um, you know, being very kind of progressive and, um, and all of that. So yeah, no. they're, they're really, yeah. That is fascinating. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so like a high end on, on the scale of progressive schools and or inter- globally minded schools, mm-hmm. some creme de la creme school was still uh, kind of exhibiting these traditional power dynamics between teachers and students, uh, adults and young people. And, oh, and so yeah. even like their mindfulness program was was in effect just an, another way to potentially exercise power over young people. And, and so it doesn't sound very self-directed, I guess. No, um, there, um, you know, the, the mindfulness was, was also kind of a required thing. Um, yeah. It, <laughs> you it's, will um, meditate. Yeah. Right. No, it's, um, it, it's really astounding to me how, um, it, it, that pattern has repeated in, in so many, um, of the schools, um, and, you know, in, and, you know, in schools that are really trying, right. That say, even will acknowledge, you know, we want student centered, you know, learning and all of this stuff. And, um, even student centered, I've come to realize is, um, adults largely kind of coming up with, you know, if I were the student and we're at the center of this, what would it look like? Okay, that's it. And now I'm going to force you to do it under threat or, you know, threats of punishment or shaming. It's just, it's amazing how we have um, been programmed to believe that our job is to force kids to do things for their own good. Um, yeah. Well, let's let's continue down the, the narrative here. Sure. You were working at the school in California. What, what happened mm-hmm. next? Um, I discovered that, um, you know, that school was not really ready to, um, to really change, um, in the way even that its rhetoric, um, suggested it might be. Um, and so I started playing, I mean, you know, we were doing some interesting things in the school, um, building some multidisciplinary things and spaces where we really were able to work with the kids, um, in a more equitable kind of co-creative way. Um, but I realized that it just, it wasn't enough for me. I really needed more, um, uh, more real connection without the kind of the strictures and, and history of a, you know, kind of pedigreed institution. Um, so a couple of things. Um, one is I started um, putting on uh, organizing TEDx events we did TEDx Youth Monterey in 2012 um, and had um, about 400 attendees um, and lots of uh, youth um, speaking and helping organize. Um, and then uh, went on to do TEDx Monterey for a few years and, and actually got my students um, at the school I was with involved in, in helping think that through and, and work on that. Um, and then with some of that crew, um, actually a related network, um, a few educators locally, one at a graduate school, um, another at a, a, another kind of competing local high school, we were all talking about how we wanted more freedom to, to really um, play with, with learning and supporting youth in different ways. And so we started a program we called I Lead and Design. Um, we started that, I think, in 2013, um, which was a two-week intensive um, kind of design thinking based, was kind of the lens we used um, to um, to work in small teams with kids. We have the, the formulas, we have three um, small teams, each with a, a facilitator or coach. Um, and we have um, the community come in and bring challenges that they want solved. 
um, and that they would like to work with, um, a, you know, a little design team on. And so we worked with the SPCA to figure out how to get more people to know about their spay and neuter clinic, for instance. Um, we worked with the city of Monterey to rethink um, a transportation plaza. They wanted to move the transportation function off of this little plaza in the heart of the city and rethink what that plaza could look like. And um, so we worked with them for, for two weeks intensively on these projects. Um, and we did that for um, six years. We paused for a couple summers now, um, but it's a formula that, um, for instance, we used at uh, Green School. We did the entire high school for three weeks. Uh, we had 11 teams um, running and um, yeah. Okay. So I lead in design. This was groups of teenagers being invited to come and try to solve actual problems, like yeah. including very specific problems. Like what do we do with this plaza plaza in the middle of uh, you know, a street here? Mm-hmm. And then you and other adults, other teachers, educators would kind of help facilitate in a design processy kind of way. Um, mm-hmm. these solutions, which would then be presented and maybe even implemented by actual companies or organizations. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And so this goes along with the theme of like the TEDx events, which is doing something real, like having teenagers engage in something that has some real product, something that, you know, you can show your friends the TEDx videos that were produced. You can say, mm-hmm. look, they didn't accept our proposal for this plaza, but we got into the top five. And and so there's some sort of, of tangible outcome there instead of just, you know, a test result, a, a grade, something that gets thrown into the waste bin five minutes later. Uh, it kind of sounds like you just want to do real things with young people in the real world. Is that an summary? I, I, I do have to admit that I really love that. Um, I mean, I, I love doing real things in the real world with all people. <laughs> I don't discriminate. Um, and, um, and I think I, um, you know, I particularly enjoy doing it with young people um, that, that choose to be there. Right. Um, the one of the, you know, the threads through both of those is that they're, they're invitation based, right? They're not um, they're not coerced. They're not mandatory. They're not forced. I don't like working with adults that have to be there and don't want to be there. Right. Um, but, it but does. Aaron, Aaron, how will the kids learn how to deal with crappy adult jobs where they have to be there and they don't really like it if they're not forced to do essentially a, a multi-year internship in that, in that experience in their youth? I, I, I asked that with, with kind of a, a patronizing voice, but that is an actual real question and concern oh. that, that a lot of us have. Believe me. And, and, you know, my um, my response to that one is, you know what, you're absolutely right. Um, and therefore, we should give women 25 um, percent lower grades in their education so that they can get used to getting paid 25 percent less when they go out into the real world. So you're Perfect saying, you're saying the, the point of of school or education is not to uh, to mimic or to reproduce current societal structures, but to to push them, evolve them, turn them into what we want them to be like. Um, I, I would say that would be definitely a better goal than, than reinforcing. Um, and, and, you know, on top of that, um, we just know that, you know, when you force actually, um, you know, Bria Bloom and I, um, just did a, um, a video a couple days ago that we put out on, you know, um, you know, should we force kids to finish stuff, right? Like I've, it's common for adults to think that we have to force kids to finish things they start. Otherwise, how will they learn, you know, how to finish things or right. Um, 
and and it and it's just um, you know that or or learning to do you know tests and that kind of thing. Um, those are so easy to learn and and so learned through regular life that when you add coercion to it, I would argue that really the thing we're teaching a hundred percent well. Um, is um, how to use power over other people to make them do things they don't want to do, um, and that non-consensuality is okay. Um, so those lessons I think we teach really well, and I would argue that not only do we not teach you know, how to finish things or how to um, be able to jump through hoops that are put in front of us if we choose to do it, um, because I think that it basically associates those things with the state of being um, oppressed and and basically can make people not want to do them. So I think that it, I think it backfires, even even though we have, you know, a lot of that suffering is is from good intentions. Well, fundamentally, I agree with you. Uh, can you tell people who Bria Bloom is? I know Bria, but uh, yeah, tell everyone else who Bria is. And, and then after that, tell us more about what you and Bria wrote in this piece about forcing kids to finish things. Because, uh, again, I, I think I would genuinely like to hear the how, your answer to that question. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, so Bria is... Um, the uh, community manager at the Alliance for Self-Directed Education um, that was um, started by Peter Gray and, and some other wonderful people. Um, and, um, and I've done some, um, some work with them in, in helping um, think through the, the creation and support of kind of local um, self-directed education communities um, and how uh, the Alliance for Self-Directed Education can support that. That's how I got to know Bria. And um, she and I actually did uh, um, a uh, session together on rethinking adulting at um, the uh, Aero Conference in Portland last summer. Um, and so she and I are doing um, some um, classes together online, live classes with adults, um, parents and teachers on, yeah, kind of de-schooling, rethinking adulting, um, what, what really, how do we make that shift in our role with youth that we want to make that, but that we're so programmed to do the opposite of. Um, and we've done a few little mini videos now um, that are on my Rethinking Adulting YouTube channel. Um, and the latest one we did is on, um, you know, should we, you know, I think we called it finishing what we start. And the reason we did that one is that that one comes up so often in my work with um, parents largely that are, that are homeschooling is they say, you know, what do I do when my kid keeps starting things and not, you know, finishing them like piano lessons or whatever it might be? Um, you know, shouldn't I force, you know, shouldn't I make them do it? Otherwise, how will they learn to finish things? Or how will they learn, you know, what it's like to get good? How will they get past that pain point or that hump of not being good and, mm -hmm. and enjoying it yet? Mm -hmm. You know, shouldn't I do that for their own good? Um, and so, you know, we talked about how, um, um, how, you know, it really is, you know, I think it's a good question if, if we, if any of us just ricochet off of challenge, you know, how will we grow into the people we would like to be? I think that's a fair question for any of us. Agreed. Uh, and, and when we're in relationship with another human being and we see them continually doing that, you know, what is our job? And, and when it's an adult-child relationship, we often revert to coercion and force as the way, because I think the, 
the underlying kind of desire and need there is valuable and, and good. Um, which is we want to see our loved one, you know, succeed at the goals they set for themselves and kind of, you know, have a wonderful life of, of resources and ability and et cetera. Um, but, you know, what basically we, we talk about is that when we force people to do things they don't want to do, first of all, it does not teach you how to finish things. They have already learned how to finish things. Look, they, they, they learn how to walk and talk right? Without formal instruction. <laughs> Those are two of the hardest things any human being is ever going to do. So we don't have to worry about people learning what it's like to finish something hard. Um, now, when we do force people to do things against their will, um, again, I think that one of the mantras that, that I use and that I, that I share with people um, is that we should always ask ourselves, what am I really teaching here? Um, and when we force people to do things, I would say whether it's math um, or finishing things or whatever it might be, I think we're teaching them to associate a feeling of subjugation with the thing that we're trying to get them to do. I mean, math we know doesn't really teach math, <laughs> right? Uh, almost everybody that learns math forgets it back down to the same level that most human beings in healthy community learn it to without formal instruction. Right. But everybody that goes through math, almost everybody learns how to not like math, how to associate learning and maybe even not like learning. Right. How to associate it with a feeling of subjugation and loss of autonomy. Um, and so I would argue that that's actually what we're teaching in any of those situations, that it's OK to use power over other people. Not only is it OK, but if you if you want to feel good about yourself, you need to get yourself in a position of power over the other people and use it. it Aaron. I'm imagining a homeschooler who is taking piano lessons and is actually kind of enjoying the piano lessons and is, is gaining some skills, but then hits a plateau, gets disheartened, yep. you know, puts in more effort and is not getting more results. And uh, I'm a parent looking at this kid thinking, okay, you just have to stick with it. Like we signed up for 12 weeks of lessons. So we're at week six right. here. Like you have enjoyed this and now you are, you are at a moment where you're not enjoying it. And I could map this scenario onto, you know, all different sorts of domains. This, mm -hmm. uh, when you use the word subjugation, that feels a bit harsh to describe this kind of uh, scenario. Like, are we really subjugating a child by saying, hey, stick with it? Uh, um, are are yeah, these the kind I, of situations you encounter in your work with parents? They are exactly those. Um, okay. I would say that it again, it depends on how we approach it, right? So, um, in the cases when we would say you have to stick with your piano lessons, um, and I don't want to hear any whining about it, um, and if you don't go, I'm going to take away your internet access for a month, right? I mean, those are pretty standard kind of par parental approaches to getting kids to do things, I would say. Um, and, um, I mean, I've experienced it. I've even in, in early days with my kids, I even used those techniques. So I would call that approach, um, subjugation. Um, now if we say, look, um, now there's two things, look, when there's family resources involved, that's, that's a different part of the conversation than when there say, aren't, you know, family resources involved. That's a good distinction. Right. But when there aren't, um, you know, I would say the conversation is another mantra that I that I I just think is is really um, useful is that um, you know we grow better when we challenge ourselves and each other. 
And if we're in a relationship with another human being where we feel inclined to challenge them, I would argue that we should both make that ex that ex agreement explicit, offer it and say, is it okay if I challenge you? And by the way, and also an invitation, I would like you to challenge me if you see me kind of not moving towards the goals I set for myself, et cetera. So that's, that's an equitable kind of challenge relationship that I think is healthy between all human beings that are in um, healthy relationship. I, um, I really agree with you on that point, uh, the challenge point, and also the the explicit invitation uh, to to be challenged and to receive that that kind of feedback. Um, what happens when somebody perpetually declines that invitation? <laughs> um, to me, that's a sign that we have broader relationship issues, um, and usually, what that will mean is that um, first of all, they probably don't that I'm not trusted. Um, that something about the relationship we have means that that, that person doesn't trust me mm -hmm. um, or um, feels that I've harmed them in some way. And they um, and until that harm is repaired, um, they're not going to be willing to engage in, in those kinds of um, invitations with me. Um, and, and I've seen that over and over with my own children, um, with students, um, that usually there's some, you know, human beings want to be in in healthy, enriching relationship with other human beings. And when, when we decline invitations to do that, um, usually there's an underlying need that's not being met. And that if you, first of all, give some space, right? The first step in that, and then Bria and I actually were talking about this in the video, the first step is um, in building that trust is saying something like, hey, I noticed you've stopped playing piano. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I wonder what that's, you know, that's about. And if they indicate they don't want to engage in that conversation, if you say, Hey, you know what? Um, I, 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 um, I just noticed it. I thought I'd ask. And, and, you know, that's, that's your choice. If in previous uh, moments in our relationship, it has always been, you know, I'm telling them what to do and I'm, I'm pushing and pushing and pushing. And at that moment, if I just acknowledge and then back off, I've begun to build the trust that I really do value their own um, opinion and need and approach to what they're doing. Um, and then I've started the process of getting to the point where, um, where when I do make an invitation of something like, hey, you know what, I want to recognize that up until this point, um, I've been you know, giving you unsolicited advice and basically telling you what to do your whole life. <laughs> and, um, and I really... I regret that that was our relationship. And, um, and from now on, I'd really like to ask you if you would like help or support, and I will respect it when you, when you tell me that you don't want it. And by the way, I really want to invite your opinion about how I can achieve my goals and how our relationship can be better Aaron, on an ongoing I, basis. I have to stop you there because those last six sentences were beautiful. Like that <laughs> should be used as a script. For parents who are starting, uh, you know, self-directed learning paths or de-schooling, and you're essentially describing the challenge of de-schooling, right? Yes. Uh, of transforming this relationship from one that's been historically about control and and dictates into one that is fundamentally trusting and one where you give the kids space. And and the, I imagine the super terrifying part of that is just not knowing how long that process is going to take mm, and yeah. not knowing when that moment is going to come when the kid 
accepts your explicit invitation mm. uh, to be pushed, to be challenged, to be nudged into growth. Because, yeah. Because really, it, it could take any amount of time, right? It could take a few weeks, could take a few years. Um, you know, it, it really is a good point. And um, there, there actually is the danger, and I, I see this in schools um, particularly, um, less so with parents, um, because they're kind of more committed and there are less institutional constraints. But it's, it's the, the sort of the attempt, and when it doesn't work on the timeline that we want it to work, we say that it doesn't work. Right. Like, um, you know, equitable co-creative education doesn't work. Right. Um, I hear often um, and it's um, and what I've kind of come to realize is that you can't have little slices of equity and co-creation in us, you know, um, or, or one ingredient in the cocktail or the soup when the rest of it, when the predominant aspect of the relationship is authoritarian. And so I see people kind of trying like, oh, I'm going to try, you know, getting them to do what I want. First of all, if you approach it as manipulation, they're going to smell it and it's not going to work. Right. So it has to be genuine. If we say, like, you don't have to do your math homework if you don't want to. It's really up to you, even though I'd love to talk with you about, you know, what that means for you, et cetera. Right. If they say, OK, well, I'm not going to do my math homework. Um, you have to then go, OK, that was your choice and not circle back, you know, three minutes later and go, ah, you made the wrong choice. You have to do it, um, which is often what adults do. Right. Um, and so we have to really, really mean it. And it can take some time. Um, I had a, a student when we um, did a, a program called Leap Academy, which I started at Green School, which really was all about coming together and saying, what are our goals as as a team and what are our goals individually and how can we help each other in those? Um, and, and the agreement we made as facilitators was, um, you know, is it okay if I see you on a trajectory that I don't think is going to hit the goals you set for yourself if I kind of remind you of that and then see if we can have a conversation about whether we need to either change your goal or change your trajectory. Is that okay with you? Yes. Okay, great. Um, so I had a student that set all these goals for herself. Um, and we did this in six week chunks and we were three, you know, uh, you know, she just wasn't doing it and we would kind of reevaluate and she would shift to a new goal and this and that. And we did this for kind of three weeks. You know, one of our things was, you know, I'm going to schedule um, nap class for myself every day. And I said, hey, you know what? If you need that to like recharge and energize and stay focused to do what you want to do in your day, then you should do that. And and there were, you know, I think some of these were actual kind of probes, right? Like what, where, where's the boundary here really? Like, I don't really trust this, right? Um and three weeks later, she came in and said, you know what? I think I need a planner. And I said, okay, um, you know, I'd be happy to help you find one, figure out how to use it if that's helpful. Um, and she basically did six weeks worth of work in three weeks. Once she, I think, both really realized that, that I wasn't going to force her to do it, right? To really kind of get to that level of trust. Um, and then also to realize, to really see where her abilities were to do what she wanted to do and what her tendencies and habits were. She flipped a switch. 
and she did it. And actually her um, mother came to me, you know, kind of near the end of, of that six week program. She said, what have you done to my child? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She said, well, she's doing chores at home and speaking to us like we're human. <laughs> and she said, I don't know what you're doing here in this little program in the school. I don't really get it. I don't know what, what they're really learning, but whatever it is, keep it up. Um, nice and so story. it, it really is. And it, and, and it, and so your point of, um, that it can take time. Um, it can take, it takes until we are trusted. And if we have, you know, really damaged that relationship, it's going to take some time. One of the thing I really caution parents on is letting anybody roll over our own needs and personal boundaries is not healthy. And what I see a lot of parents do in that state when they realize, oh my gosh, I've been domineering for, you know, the 10 years of my kid's life. I need to fix this. They then move to like, whatever you want, kid. Yes. You know, roll all over me, um, all over my needs. And that's really unhealthy. And that doesn't, that doesn't repair the relationship. Um, it actually, you know, authoritarianism and permissiveness don't average out to healthy. I like that line. That's a good one liner. You should keep that. <laughs> uh, how do you feel about the, I don't remember who the researcher is, but the, the three way breakdown between authoritarian, authoritative and permissive parenting styles. Does that hold water for you? Um, you know, so the, that language that I've, um, the authoritarian permissive kind of flip-flop um, I first heard described in the, um, the positive discipline um, framework, um, an, a name that I don't like, um, but I, I really do like, you know, the way that they talk about that. Um, you know, um, I'm not really sure how they triangulate. I mean, I think authoritative um you know, the way I've heard that described is, is just that, you know, it's, it's okay to, to like, to know stuff. <laughs> and to, so the way that I think of that is, I don't know that I can speak to how that one is described. Um, you could maybe refresh my and the listener's memory on that. But the way that I think of authoritative is, um, you know, it, whenever we have a team, even if it's a team of two, we're going to have different experiences. Um, and the if it's a youth and an adult, the youth is going to be um, an authority on some things that I'm not. And I'll be an authority on some things that they're not, right? I'll have, we each have different experience and different knowledge. And all members of a team with authority or expertise should make that available to the team. Um, I think that what I, what I worry about in that authority kind of thinking is that it can be co-opted to mean I'm an authority on this and, and I, therefore I know better and therefore, and this is when it gets tricky, it's okay for me to force you to do the thing because I know better. Yeah, yeah. This, this makes me think of the summer camp where I grew up attending and I worked for a number of years, Deer Crossing Camp in California. Mm -hmm. And the the focus of the, the director there is very much on competency. And he mm -hmm. he says, if you can roll a kayak, if you can show me that you've got really good wilderness first aid skills, then I'm going to give you more responsibilities. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. more, competency, uh -huh. more competency equals more uh, responsibility and more and more of my trust here in this environment because you're taking care of all these kids. I got to make sure you're doing a good job. Mm -hmm. And and he was able to do that in a way that that felt very 
um, I guess, objective. Like he really yeah. did uh, not play favorites and he really did respect competency uh, wherever and whenever it arose. And if he didn't think highly of you in the beginning of the summer and then you decided that you're going to get a lot better at something, rapidly develop some skills, uh, he would see mm-hmm. that, recognize it, and then give you more uh, trust and responsibility. And so I imagine that within the, the, a family context, uh, sure, parents, or within a, a school context, parents, teachers, adults, they have more life experience. They have more competency in many areas, not all areas. So it's important to recognize when a young person genuinely does have, you know, genuinely has more competency than you do. Um, but even if you have out of 10 different topics, if you have more competency in nine of those topics, uh, than a young person does, that doesn't give you the right to change the rules of the game. You don't get to, it, it's not like you won the vote and therefore you get to to play God uh, with the entire relationship or the entire structure uh, of this learning environment. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah I agree. I, I think, well, I was just, yeah, sorry to interrupt. I think, um, yeah, I think for me, um, anytime we find ourselves, um, you know, ready to force somebody to do anything, we really need to back up and think what's going on here, right? I mean, if, if a truck is barreling down on a child or anybody um, and they are not responding to my pleas to get out of the way, I'm going to force them to move, right? Like there are times when like I have the power to do it. And in this instance, I'm going to use that power. If it's to do your math homework, um, you know, I'm going to force you to do that because I think eventually that's going to be good for you. I think that we really need to stop and think what's the, the net sum of, of kind of um, good here because I think that it doesn't weigh out in that one. When we, when we have, um, you know, in an instance of where like, you know, I want to, you know, go out in the kayak or I want to drive the car and they say, you know, I think, you know, any kid's with any kind of logic is going to say, well, if this is a self-directed environment, I should be able to do that, right? (laughs) Because who are you to tell me I can't? Um, And I think that's where, um, when I'm working with youth or um, is where it most comes up in, you know, we do have power as adults, right? Um, We can't get rid of that. We have it. We're bigger, we're stronger in in most cases. Um, You know, we have access to financial resources. So we do have power and it's how we use it. And so um, restricting access to things is a different use of power than forcing people to do things is how Mm -hmm. I think of it. Yeah, good distinction. And and so um, if, you know, someone wants to take the kayak out, you know, on the lake and I don't feel they're ready... I just think it's important rather than to just say, you're not ready, you can't do it. I really try to avoid language of like can and can't. It really bothers me, for instance, when I'm in a school and kids come up and say, can I go to the bathroom or can I change my project to this? Um, Because I don't think that, you know, it's just, you know, it just implies power. Um, And so in a case of the kayak, I would say, look, first of all, it's my responsibility to kind of keep people safe. And I'm entrusted with these resources of kayaks and et cetera. Um, and that I'm to use my judgment around them and to keep people safe. So I, I want it. So anytime I'm going to restrict anybody, I really try to use a justification that they can understand and that they realize I'm not doing it out of arbitrariness. Um, and, and that it's, um, it, that it's a, that it's a reluctant use of power. 
I guess is the way that I would put it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I would say, um, you know, so I just want you to understand that. And I really don't feel you're ready. And I'm really sorry that I'm restricting you from doing something that you would like to do and that you feel ready for. But ultimately, I'm responsible for this equipment and I'm legally responsible for you here. And I'm worried that you know, you might get injured and it could compromise the camp and me and you, I don't want to see you die. Um, and so I would really like to, and then I'll make an invitation. What do you say? Like, I want to get you there before summer's over. Also, what do you say? We get really clear on what it'll take to get you there. And, um, and we find out how I or others can support you in doing that. Does that sound like a good approach? And I, I just don't get any kids or human beings, um, not agreeing to things that are reasonable when you lay them out in that way. Um, and so that's it for me, distinguishing between forcing people to do things and restricting access. And whenever I do use power, even if it's pulling a kid out of a way from a truck afterwards, I'll, you know, that hasn't happened, but when it's, you know, pulling them off of a high fence or whatever it might be, I'll say, look, I want to, you know, apologize for the fact that I put my hands on you and that I moved you without your permission. Hmm. But I really felt it was necessary for your safety. So basically, I'm repairing the relationship from the kind of the power use um, after the fact. So, Aaron, we've been talking a lot about your philosophy of education, of consent, of building up this trust, and how in many of the formal learning environments you've been a part of, especially some highly regarded private schools, that that has never really materialized, that really you've realized kids just need to be able to opt into situations. Um, now, at the same time, you are currently the executive director of, of a, a cool progressive school in San Francisco, the, the Brightbirds mm -hmm. School. What, what yeah. makes this school different in these regards uh, to you? And, and, and also, can you please yeah. first differentiate between your role there at the school and your role as the mm -hmm. executive director of the Institute for Applied Tinkering, which I have no idea what that is for the record. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Um, so um, the Institute for Applied Tinkering is... Um, is the organization that that manages Brightworks or has Brightworks? Our, our two programs are um, our Brightworks, which is our K twelve school. We have about eighty five students currently. Uh, we're about eight years old. Um, and the um, Tinkering School, um, confusing name because it's actually our summer camp and kind of weekend and after school program, Tinkering Camps. Um, those are the two programs that we have. Um, and then we actually have a third kind of leg of this um, uh, organization, which is our um, Curious Educators Division, we call it. And, and that's really where our mission is to change the world. And the reason I'm here um, at, at the, um, the Institute for Applied Tinkering, and I was on the board first, and then I moved into the executive director role, is that I think that it to really change um, the world of education and, and through that, the way that adults relate to, um, to, to youth and to each other, really. Um, we, you know, these kind of bright spot um, programs need to, quote unquote, work, um, and they need to be visible, and, and, and they need to share what they're doing. Um, and so the Curious Educators Division is kind of our, you know, arm that we're, we're building to try to really share what we're learning. Um, the reason that, so that's, you know, one of the reasons I joined is that. And then the other reason is that um, 
you know, I, um, I heard about Brightworks years ago and, you know, I, I hear about so many schools that use all the words that I kind of call the right words, right? You know, student-centered, this and that, inquiry-based, you know, pretty much every school's website sounds the yeah, same yeah, now, yeah. right? Experiential, um, holistic. Yeah, totally. You know, we have a mindfulness program, you know, it's like we have a maker, like all the same stuff. And so after so many years of, of kind of seeing them in action after reading the words and going, oh, right, no, you're not doing that at all. Okay, I get it. Um, when I discovered Brightworks and, and spent a little time with Gaber Tully, the, the founder, um, and Mackenzie Price, who's now our director of program, um, we actually were brought together sight unseen to co-facilitate a three-day um, educators workshop in Hawaii a few years ago that we co-created together kind of in real time. And, and then I, that was kind of when I recognized, oh, you guys really are doing it. I realized that um, that they really the way they were relating to the peop- the adults and the kids that were part of this uh, workshop or or mini kind of conference that we were brought in to co-facilitate together. I really saw the foundations of a way of relating that that I know to be the basis of you know really doing those things um, that all the websites say. And so then I was you know curious to learn more about them and. Um, and I would say that the the fundamental um, um, kind of ethic of engagement, as I call it, the ethic of engagement at Brightworks really is um, equitable and co-creative. Um, are we doing it perfectly? Have we totally de-schooled? Um, no. But it's a um, it's an explicit acknowledgement um, on the on behalf of the the leadership and the founder and and, and the team that you know we're not there but we want to be um, and so there's a lot going on that I would say is um, I mean I would love for my kids to be there um, and uh, we live two hours away and so that's not feasible for them um, but so the ethic of engagement is right and the and the direction that it's heading in is right. And um, and that's why I'm there. Yeah, that's quite an endorsement coming from someone with your background and someone who's thought so much about this. And uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not kind to schools. I will. <laughs> good, good. You're you're appropriately critical, I think. Um, and so we could do a whole other podcast episode just about Brightworks. But uh, if people want to learn more about the school, of course, they can visit the website. Um, if you travel to San Francisco, can you schedule a tour or a visiting day with Brightworks? Yeah. Um, so we have um, monthly, I believe, um, I think it's Thursdays, but it's it's the schedules on the website, um, uh, a curious educators tour. And really anyone um, who's curious um, can come and join that tour. It's about 90 minutes long. Um, and then for groups that would like to, um, to arrange private, um, uh, tours, um, that's also possible. We do have schools. We had a school from Australia recently, um, come and do that. Um, you know, we try to, we try to minimize, you know, just be judicious about, um, how much, um, you know, we have groups of people walking through the space, but, um, um, but it's definitely a possibility. And then we also have our, um, our Curious Educators Summer Institutes um, and their uh, three or four day intensive experience on um, how we build and facilitate 
um, learning experiences with kids. Uh, so educators come for that. Um, we, we have one that we do on the Brightworks side, which is really kind of about, you know, um, for educators in kind of, you know, school or learning community settings where adults are designing learning experiences for kids that have kind of somewhat of a school, um, you know, uh, or ex- explicit education um, goal. And then this year for the first time, we're going to also have um, Tinkering School doing um, three-day intensives for people that um, want to be holding space in kind of a makerspace way. So whether you're uh, the makerspace, you know, kind of person at a, a school or a lot of libraries are starting makerspaces and community centers are starting makerspaces. So, you know, just what's uh, our what's our approach to being a partner in making and tinkering with kids? Because again, um, we see, you know, even the kind of the ethos that really underlies the maker movement, which really is about equity and co-creation, destroyed by adults, particularly in school environments. um, When we, when many adults think that part of our job is to teach kids how to follow um, the dictates of authority. Um, And so how do we, how do we kind of, so I would say that de-schooling is really woven into um, both of those programs um, and, and highly recommend them. I'm really glad that you're creating these professional development opportunities for teachers and educators and, and other adults because there's not very many of them out there. So uh, I'm glad that you shared this. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, one more question for you, Eric. Yeah. You have migrated between so many different programs. You've started programs. You have your own consulting group. You, I imagine that no matter where you end up, there's always another place for you to go. So, <laughs> so w- without trying to peer too much into the crystal ball, uh, what is next for you in terms of your work in this world? Yeah. Um, well, I'm. Uh, I I don't know that I. I mean, I, I I'm, I'm certain that I'll never stop trying to um, rehumanize. Um, you know, uh, education, um, the way we work together, the, the tagline that I'm kind of using these days is rehumanizing how we, um, work, learn and live. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm starting to do, um, some uh, applied mindfulness coaching, um, in small groups, um, that's live online, um, that, uh, I really find enriching. Um, um, and, uh, I'm, I'm working on a book, um, tentatively called rethinking adulting, um, or, um, uh, something along those lines, but, but it's really about what is, what is it about this relationship, um, that we think is how it's supposed to be between adults and youth. Um, and, and what is it, you know, what is that actually doing and how is that delivering, um, the opposite of the world we want? And what are the changes we can make as parents and teachers and adults in society um, to rethink that relationship and to um, to do the work we need to do to um, to kind of move off of this um, hierarchical power paradigm to a more equitable co-creative one and and to use the power that we have um, um, more judiciously. Um, so writing that book um, is something that I. Um, uh, and determined to get done, um, to continue um, working with schools and really any congruence of humans um, or even individual humans in how do we do the work to 
to analyze the um, the patterns and the paradigms and the assumptions that we hold about ourselves and our role um, in society and our role with others, um, and how do we shift towards a more equitable, co-creative, um, mindful, and intentional approach to that in a way that enriches um, each of us in the relationship. Um, so that work will continue um, in exactly what space and in what role, um, I don't know. Um, you know, there are um, some schools that, that I've talked with about potentially helping, you know, them make that transformation um, as, um, you know, a kind of a permanent leader at the school, um, which is something I shy away from. I, I really, <laughs> um, I started the consulting group so that I can work with schools or communities that are really, really ready. And if we begin the work, which often happens and it turns out they're not really, really ready to push pause and move on to work with somebody that is ready and then circle back if needed. Um, so I really hesitate to lock in with communities that may end up not really being ready. Um, but that's a possibility. Um, you know, the family, we're looking at potentially uh, relocating to Europe um, sometime in the next uh, few years. Um and um, um, I really enjoy uh, work that I've done in India um, and have a strong affinity for the country and, and people there um, and could see some more projects, um, being able to, to take some more projects in India. Um, yeah. So, so you could literally be anywhere in the world doing some cool work with schools or, or <laughs> other communities that, that focus on learning. Yeah, I um I mean as 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 you know, um you you work all over as well. Um there are there are communities and people all over the world that are really really hungry um to engage with um with youth um in a way that feels more um enriching and less like a prison warden. Um I mean there are few people that really enjoy um forcing other human beings to do things even if it's for their own good. And when people find a way to to um, to relate in a way that's more equitable and co-creative and the feeling of growth and kind of um, connectedness and, and fulfillment that comes from every party in that relationship, um, I just haven't met an adult yet that doesn't love that feeling. Um, and, um, and those people exist in, in every country and in every part of the world that, that want to do that work, um, and haven't had the opportunity to, to be in those environments and don't even know really what it looks like or feels like. And, and when they get, when they get a taste of it, I think, I think I might be addicted to like helping people, <laughs> um, be able to spend time in those, um, those spaces, um, and to be able to taste what it's like to um, to relate with each other in that way and to learn together. Yeah. Well, if you have to be addicted to something, that's a great contender. <laughs> so uh, That and collecting old vinyl records are my addictions. So. Sure, sure. Stick with the first one, though, if you have to choose. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. That's right. Aaron, that's Aaron, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, Blake, um, really, really good to talk with you. And I, I look forward to um, future conversations uh, on or off the air.